0: Good afternoon everyone. Um, I'm so, welcome to, uh, so happy to welcome you and President Tong to this event. Um, I'm Robin Mansell, I'm deputy director and provost at the LSE and we welcome you back to LSE today for the first time since he graduated. Um, president Tong is president of Kiribati um, since 2003 and he steps down at the end of 2015 after meeting the term limits that are prescribed in your country um, by the Constitution. He's an alumnus of LSE with an M- 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 of the LSE, with an MSC in economics and law, I believe. Climate change is a defining issue of your presidency. in today's lecture, as the president of an island republic in the Central Pacific he's going to talk about what it's like to really be on the front line of climate change he has been in the past responsible for uh... introducing regional conferences to reach agreement on a way forward with declarations um, and despite your country's best efforts at mitigation relocation of the people may be the only long-term <clears throat> option as the physical fabric of the country becomes basically uninhabitable. I know that you have a very low elevation above sea level, that you have problems of submergence and coastal flooding that you need to deal with. So we look forward to your talk today in an area which is <coughs> serious not only to your country but to all countries of the world. Um, for those of you who want to tweet, today's hashtag is hash LSE. Kiribati, I hope I'm pronouncing it close. Kiribati. Mm-hmm. Please put your ob- uh, mobile phones on silent now. And after the talk the President will take questions. We have a very tight uh, period because other s- students will be coming into the room at 3. So we don't have a lot of time. Sure. So mm-hmm. without anything more from me, please go ahead. Welcome. Okay.
1: Thank thank you, Madam Chair, Madam Deputy Director, and Provost of the the school. Um, I believe there are members of uh, the Diplomatic Corps here, so Excellencies. I believe there is the um, Secretary General Designate of the Commonwealth Secretariat, and, of course, ladies and gentlemen. In Kiribati, we always start off with a greeting, so let me greet you. And in greeting you, I bless you. And so I'm going to say it, and you're going to reply, saying, um, when I say it means may you be blessed and you reply by saying no so let me begin thank you now we're all blessed well let me say that it's uh, such a wonderful honor and a pleasure to be back here in, uh, at uh, LSE it's, it's been quite some time since I was here maybe more than 20 years so not quite 30 years yet but it's, it's nice to come back and see some of the, the landmarks that I I could recall. It's very different, but uh, nevertheless as refreshing as it was when I was here uh, more than 20 years ago. This, morning, this afternoon, I, what I intend to do is share with you our story. It's an interesting story, but nevertheless it's the reality of what it is we face in our part of the world. Our world, our planet, the one and only home we have is indeed at a very critical turning point. And whilst the debate will continue on in Paris for the next few days on how we should progress another way forward. For some of us, it may already be too little, too late. Kiribati is, uh, has been relatively isolated for many years. For the, uh, for the, uh, during our early development, we thought that we were isolated from the rest of the world, especially the impacts of what's going, around, going on in different parts of the world. And uh, we thought we were safe from events that took place in in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, in the United States. But I think over recent years we've come to realize that we should have been engaging all this time because what was happening in Europe during the industrial uh, period, all of what is happening now is a product of what was happening then in different boardrooms, in different parts of the world. And so we've woken up the reality that we should have been making our voices heard. And so we are trying very desperately now to be heard. <clears throat> because for low-lying atoll nations like ours, as said, it's, um, we're on average about two meters above sea level. But even that is, a, I think, more, very much a liberal uh, estimation. Sometimes when the, the king tides come, there's only a very small margin of land above the sea. And so whenever there is a bit of a wind blowing with the the king tides, then we get overtopping of the waves over the island, sometimes resulting in very severe inundation, sometimes destroying homes, food crops, the waterlands. But what we are facing now is the real potential of our islands disappearing on the basis of what the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has been predicting uh, within this century, we will definitely be underwater. And so that is our future, regardless of what the levels of emissions are agreed in Paris. And I know the debate, one of the, the ongoing debates is whether it should be 2 degrees Celsius or 1.5. We, the nations from the Pacific, have been going for 1.5 because it's, it's even, that, even that is even too much. Because on the basis of the science, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but... Uh, The the projection is that the momentum of already in the atmosphere will continue to raise the sea level beyond what it is that uh, our islands can can deal with. And so that is the reality we are facing. And so much of the the talk about climate change is uh, the, the suggestion that climate change remains speculative, that the impacts of climate change remain yet to be felt. But the reality is far from that. We already are feeling the impacts. In the, the beginning of last year we we had some very severe, severe flooding. A hospital which was recently completed was destroyed because the, the waves came over where they never did be, come before and people were walking around in um, um, seawater up to their knee and so these are the kind of things that we did not see. Early this year the same thing happened but in, in addition to that we had the um, cyclone now, we don't get cyclones in our part of the world. If you know your geography, we're on the doldrums, we're on the equator. We're not supposed to get the storms. We're supposed we create them, and they go north or south. Yes, <laughs> yes we do. And, uh, but on this occasion, Cyclone Pam, which hit Vanuatu very seriously, and uh, Tuvalu was underwater. They were all flooded. And uh, But this time, uh, Cyclone Pam, which went south and then came back around, and it hit ourselves southernmost most islands, destroying a lot of homes, food crops, the waterlands. And so our community on those islands is um, still recovering. It didn't just impact those islands. It touched the rest of the group. And I went back to my, my constituency just recently, and I saw that a lot of grapefruit trees, these trees take oh, decades to, to, to bear fruit. And so these trees have been there for 50, 60, 70 years. Now they're all there. And so they... They are the source of uh, staple diet for our people, and so we will have to replant those, provided that the water, the waterlands has not been uh, contaminated. And so it's not just what the science is telling us. It is what we are experiencing on the ground. We are getting a very clear uh, indication that uh, what the science is saying is perhaps even conservative. And so even... Our, what we are experiencing is even a lot more severe than what has been predicted in the science. And so the question you were asking: So what are your plans? Okay, we're trying to survive. As I said, we, we try, um, climate change for us is not an, an issue of uh, economic growth, it's not about maintaining your GDP, it's not about the environment purely, but it's about survival for our future generations. I, I can see that within my lifetime, I have seen some changes. There are communities which have left their homes, their villages, and there are communities which are now being very severely affected. And quite often in Parliament, there are questions raised, and what can government do about this? And I've been very frank to say, really, we don't know what to do, because it's beyond our capacity to do it. Because the, what's happening is the seawater is coming up from under the ground. So why that is happening, uh, we don't know. And we don't have the technical capacity to, to address this. And so in response to that, we, we've tried to try to be confident in the face of all of this because I can assure you it's not easy when you have a situation where you have to admit that there is nothing that you can do. But um, for me, it was about struggling to find a solution because my fear was that people would ask me, what is it that government is planning to do for us to ensure our safety into the future in the face of this challenge? And the honest answer that I was framing in my own mind was to say, there's really nothing we can do because it's beyond our control. We have to leave it to the international community. But from my experience over the last more than 10 years, the international community has been very, very slow in coming forward. I think there continue to be a lot of denying denials. I think the, by 2007, when the, um, the fourth assessment report of the IPCC came forward, it was the first time that perhaps there was uh, agreement in the, uh, the scientific community that climate change was human-induced, that there were, were serious consequences ahead of us. The fifth assessment report, together with more recent um, studies, indicate that it's actually the, the, the IPCC projections are actually very, very conservative, so we know that. So what do we do? Well, we made a commitment. We said, trying to pick up courage, we said we will continue to live on our islands. I know some of my colleagues in the the Pacific, they say we will never leave our islands, but how can you stay on if it's going to go underwater? So we are committed to ensuring that the nation of Kiribati will continue to be able to, to, to exist into the future. We refuse to go under. But the reality that we have to accept is, acknowledge is that it is very unlikely that we will ever get the scale of resources required in order to be able to, to continue to accommodate our current level of population. I don't think the global community, the international community, is ready and willing to do that. Not unless they can change. There's a radical change in thinking. Not unless there is a firm commitment. Not unless they would become very compassionate moral human beings, which I know have been challenging the international community to be more moral on this issue. Even early this morning, I was on radio, on uh, television, and the same question keeps coming forward because some of the developing countries, they say, they, they pose the question to us, we cannot do away without these, these uh, fossil fuel fuel as energy sources because it's about pulling our poor people, millions of poor people, But really what that is saying is uh, posing a very fundamental moral question that we, the 100,000 people, do not matter because there's a a million people that need to be pulled out of poverty. Now, that is a question that I will leave to you to ponder over. Maybe you can find the answers, but the answer to me is very clear. If you can keep your remissions within your boundaries, go ahead, do whatever you like. But that is virtually a declaration of war. You are deciding to kill the to destroy the homes of people because you want to do something for your own people. And so these are the moral issues being um, argued now. They're being debated in Paris right at this this moment. And so relocation must be part of our strategy. We are with the reality that because we would be unable to accommodate all of our people, we have to begin the process of relocating. Now I've been quoted and maybe misunderstood, that uh, I am advocating uh, leaving the country. No, my my position is simply an acceptance of the reality. I don't want to keep saying that we will not leave and find at the last moment that we can no longer be able to accommodate our people on the islands and find ourselves in a situation where Europe is at this moment, trying to deal with an issue that... There was denial for a long time that it was going to happen. Well, we know that climate change is happening. We know that a lot of people are going to be relocated, either within their own borders or beyond their borders, as we would have to be. And so that is part of our strategy. And so in advocating relocation, I put forward a um, concept because I reject the notion of climate refugees every time there is – a Somebody mentions climate refugees. I cringe. I don't like it. So I advocate instead migration, the policy of migration with dignity, whereby we will be training our people, upskilling them to international qualifications so that they can migrate today as a matter of choice, on merit, as people with dignity and as people who will be able to make a contribution to the community they join. I sometimes joke, but I am not joking. I'm, te- I'm deadly serious that one day at home, one of our people who migrates will become Prime Minister, maybe in Australia or New Zealand. But that is the reality. We must continue to think very positive. And so the question really is, um, I'm sure foremost in, in your minds will be, what do you think is going to happen in Paris? Well, I don't know, because before I left, I left yesterday. Before I left, I was getting a very good um, report. Now this morning, I got an update, and it doesn't look too good. But I I continue to hope. There is no doubt in my mind that uh, the progress of negotiations so far has been more positive than ever before, certainly much more positive than was the case in in Copenhagen in in 2009. A lot of work has been done. And so all that needed to be done has been done. But I think the only problem would be if there were countries with the deliberate intention of sabotaging the entire process. And that is immoral. I don't believe that people would deliberately go out of their way to do that. It would be so sad. It would be so unfortunate. Because I do believe that there are ways of doing this. I have called for a moratorium, together with our Pacific Countries, for a moratorium on, on, on the opening of investment into new coal mines. I'm being criticized. So what? What, I, what I'm what i trying to do is challenge people, countries, that if they are serious about decarbonizing, then let's find something that they can definitely identify something that they should do. And so um, coal, not stopping coal, the use of coal straight away, but not investing any more in, in, new, in new, uh, new coal mines. The basis being that If we are serious about transitioning, then it doesn't make sense to continue to invest in opening new coal mines. And so that is the challenge. So there are those that don't like it. I would ask them the next next question. And if not coal, what? How are you going to decarbonize? Or are you just giving us lip service so that we can be satisfied with what it is that we are talking about? Okay, I have a lot of emotional comments here. It's a very much a, a serious issue for us. It's, um, I have, we have, my wife and I have more, 12 grandchildren. So it, it's, uh, but it's not just about our grandchildren. It's about everybody else's grandchildren. And the reality is this. We are on the front line today. But if we go, if we do not survive because the, the, the international community come, does not come to our assistance, then others will follow. But what is absolutely necessary is that we really start seriously working about decarbonizing. If those countries on the the front line have to go down, then it's got to be for a good reason that uh, we would be the lesson that uh, that's not the way to go. That surely there must be a better way of doing things. In going through this, I've done this for more than 10 years and I recall when I first started about, talking about climate change, nobody listened. I screamed at the United Nations, nobody listened. There was focus on terrorism. And so there was a time I said, I sat with my people, and I said, maybe we should talk about eco-terrorism, they might listen. But still they did not listen. Okay? And so there was a time I, I had to find a way to capture the attention to focus attention on this. And so I picked up this uh, article from the National Geographic about the polar bears. And, in fact, the polar bears were getting more attention than we were. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, And this is the truth. So I said, okay, we feel sorry about the polar bears. But don't forget that we're also in deep trouble down uh, down there in the equator. Our lives, our future are in serious uh, jeopardy. And so that's where we are going at the moment. The question will be what will... COP21 come out with. Okay? What I hope will happen is I pray and hope. In fact, I, I told a story. I didn't know it would go on the, on the Internet. That uh, on Sunday, last Sunday, I, my wife was, she wanted to go and visit the, the beautiful church, uh, Notre Dame. And she said, oh, we must go to Meste. And I was not feeling too good. I said, no, I'm not going. Then the last minute I thought, no, let us go. Maybe we should pray For a positive outcome. So we're still praying for a miracle to happen. But in the event that that does not happen, we have a fallback position because we, the countries on the front line, cannot allow such an outcome to be the case. It's not something that we can live with because our future is at stake. So we have initiated and, and launched a program yesterday on an initiative which involves a coalition of the most vulnerable countries, meaning the the, the, the Atoll Island nations, which are most vulnerable. <clears throat> and so we have formed a coalition, and we have launched an initiative which is, we call, the Pacific Rising. It's, a, it's an innovative uh, uh, initiative. All we are doing, saying is this, um, there are people, and there are institutions, and there are countries that um, are willing and able to do something, even though support our case. And so what we want to do is provide the mechanism and the channel through which they can do that. And that is what the Pacific Rising is about. It's a new initiative. It's it's capturing the attention of many, especially the the, the philanthropy. They're very interested in supporting that. And uh, even if Paris succeeds or does not succeed, we have a fallback position because we need to have a plan B and a plan C and whatever else because – the alternatives are not acceptable. Just to share with you the members of the, the Coalition of Atoll Nations on Climate Change, it's Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Republic of the Islands, the Maldives, and Tokelau. Tokelau is not an independent state, but it doesn't have a voice. And so they are complaining that they cannot get access to the Green Climate Fund. And the reality also is we cannot get access to the Green Climate Fund because we don't have accreditation so the countries that need this most, and what frustrates me is I, I'm i sure I have contributed to the formation of this fund because of my advocacy over the years, yet we cannot get at it. We cannot ex- access it because we don't have accreditation because we don't have the capacity. We have the vulnerability but not the capacity to access it. So let me end by saying that uh, here... It's about caring for what it is that will happen to our future, our children, their children, and their grandchildren. Because if nothing happens, then there will be something terribly wonderful that would be lost. Thank you.
0: Thank you President Tong Uh, you present us with the profound challenges that you're facing very very clearly and you also present the moral predicament and you also present a way forward and I think um, I want to open the floor to questions Um, can you say who you are and uh, where you're from I just want to note this is being uh, recorded and so you should recognize that thank you Yes, sir.
3: Thank you very much, Mr. President. My name is Ian Orr, and I'm a retired UK diplomat. Your timing coming here is, is very good in the sense that we are more aware of some of the extreme weather conditions, and I believe more people have suffered from the recent floods in the northeast of England than the whole population of your country the thing I would like you to comment on is what message do you have for countries which do talk the talk in Paris but don't always deliver the policies in their own home countries and I'm not looking at another country
1: Uh, if, I, if I can just repeat what I've been saying on this issue, because what I find is um, we, we come to these interne- international conferences, but we bring our own national agenda, and we try to put it there, up the front. But on the issue of climate change, it's not about a national issue or your, your own domestic politics. It's, a, it's, about a, it's about a global challenge, which can, be, can only be tackled globally. Again, I, I make the point that... Um, you have no justification for saying that, oh, I can do this, because otherwise, um, my, and I've had this, actually, in reality, just a few months back, uh, where other leaders are saying, we, we can't really cut back as much as you're asking us because our economies would suffer. But, uh, and my response has been, so what are you going to do with the rest of your, your emissions? Can you keep them within your borders? Because if you could, we would not be having this discussion, and I would not be asking you for anything. But you are. And I believe I have the right to be asking you to control your emissions because it affects the future of our people. And so I think the the problem is we continue to think that we are playing our national politics and and taking it there and putting forward our priorities, national priorities ahead of what is perhaps the most significant challenge for humanity at this time. It may mean that uh, the future of the planet is in serious question. So we should realize that, rather than continue to think that, you no, know, the developed countries have had their turn, it's now my turn. But by the time everybody has a turn, there will be nothing left. So that, that is what I've been saying.
0: Thank you. More questions? Yes, over there at the back.
2: Hello. Um, I'm Benedict from LSE. I'm a master's student from the Philippines under the Shivening Scholarship. Um, Uh, My question, sir, is, first, thank you for taking the cudgels for the Pacific countries like the Philippines. But my question is, um, the climate change issue is intergenerational. So how do you engage your youth in your country in this campaign? And what's your message, for example, to the youth?
3: Thank you.
1: Yeah, I I always believe that climate change is really the the issue for the, the young people because old people like me, I don't have a lot longer to stay on this earth. okay? But it's about the young people. And I think it certainly, in Kivuos, in there's an uh, increasing in, uh, engagement of the young people. And what I'm seeing in different countries is that is happening. There's a great deal of public uh, uh, engagement. And I, I sometimes believe I think there is a disparity between that public opinion and the political position. And I don't know if I am reading it right or not. And I, I tend to think, because I've just been to Australia, I've been to a number of countries, and uh, the public are talking, they're making their voices heard that they want something to be done about climate change. Yet it's the political leaders that are not responding in the, in, with the same kind of passion and demanding that uh, more should be done to protect the, the, the planet from what is happening at the moment. So definitely, it's the it's the task of the young people. I was in Malta just recently and I met the new Prime Minister of um, Canada. And of course he's a young man. He's a very young man. And uh, <laughs> handsome too for you ladies, very handsome. <laughs> and uh, oh, he was so refreshing. I, I, I loved the man. He, you know, he, 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 he was in the moment he was able to swing around the position of Canada. And so I said, oh, if Canada can do it, why can not the rest of you do it? Because in, with, by, in Canada, in doing this, I'm sure they've taken everything into consideration, but they will not. Um, there's no disaster. All they needed was the political will to do the right thing. So, yes, it's very much an issue for the young people.
0: Yes, hands up. More questions? Yes, I see some people <clears throat> there. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Conrad Heiner. I'm a freelance journalist uh, from New Zealand. My question is in a wider Pacific context, and I'm also bearing in mind your earlier comment about climate refugees. Having said that, I'd like to ask you for a reaction to some of the ways New Zealand has reacted to Pacific global warming issues. For example, refusal of the concept of climate refugees, and more recently, a lack of willingness to accept the idea of a 1.5 degree emissions limit.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I think it's one, it's one of those things where we agree to disagree with New Zealand and Australia on this issue. We, we were in Papua New Guinea for the forum, and uh, we came away with a, an accord. But uh, really, what we wanted was a much more ambitious uh, target. Um, but, of course, it, um, the position of Australia and New Zealand was that if we cut, make any deeper cuts by going for 1.5 rather than 2, it would hurt the industries and their economies would go in recession. And so we had this uh, press conference, and I was there, they were both there, and I was, I was the only one. And I said, okay. And the media was very active. I said, oh, I understand these two uh, talking about their economies. We understand, but you, I don't accept it, because here I am not arguing about how rich or how much better off we want to be, to become. We just want to survive. And so it's about, we've got a any sensible person should be able to weigh those. And so." That has been the problem, but I believe it's getting the discussions in Paris at the moment are beginning to close that gap, and so that is very, very uh, encouraging. I know I'm getting a sense that both Australia and New Zealand are moving forward on this. Um, there is a suggestion which seems to worry me, and that is that um, Australia and New Zealand may find it um, more, how do put it, more cost effective to allow us to go underwater rather than to cut the emissions. So then and to, to, to take us in as, as uh, climate uh, refugees if that is what you call it. It might, might be cheap. And so that is something we really need to uh, got, it needs to be reevaluated, both from a moral point of view and also from an economic point of view because what they're doing is they're, they're paying, they're, paying a, they're not paying the price for what they They're getting out of the the losses that we are sustaining, and so this is what what is the 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 crux of the discussions in Paris at the moment: loss and damage, and the gap between 1.5 and 2 degrees uh, uh, Celsius.
0: I have a question for you, if I may. Um, Let us assume that they do reach some kind of agreement in Paris, um, which is inclusive and recognizes the problems. Um, Can you? talk a little bit about your confidence in implementation, I mean, these processes often in different areas, whether it's um, <coughs> <and> gender areas, <coughs> or big global issues, quite often you can reach a consensus at some point and then what happens. So I ask you to reflect on that a little bit.
1: Well, I think the reality is um, we, we're not in a position to influence the large countries like the United States, China, India. Um, the, what we have done up to now has been put forward the moral argument. And um, it's, um, the, what needs to be done is to have greater transparency in the, in the way the agreement is implemented. There would be a review clause, and I think that's being uh, pushed into the agreement. Uh, there needs to be greater transparency that the INDCs that we put forward, we, we stick to them. And uh, the, 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 also the question of whether there should be a legally binding agreement He's meeting some resistance, but I think it's a matter of wording. It's a matter of how what, what components of the agreement are made legally binding. Okay? But at the moment it's about making an agreement survive that, that there is an agreement reached. I had a copy of the, um, the latest text this morning and it's, it's been cut down from quite a thick document into a less thick document. It's still thick. Uh, 20, 29 pages, I think or even less. So that will always be the question. The, the, um, how to regulate the behavior of countries in an international setting? Unfortunately, we don't have a cabinet. We're not answerable. There is no democracy, no, no real democracy. I mean, they say our voices, we have equal voice, but we don't. And that is the reality of what it is in international politics. We preach democracy, but we don't practice it in, in, in an international setting if it doesn't suit us. So that is our concern. And of course, I mean this will. This is what we will be discussing. Also, is what is being discussed in Paris? How to ensure that th- those points that are agreed are actually achieved?
0: Mm. Thank mm. you. Um, more questions? Yes. <clears throat> Wait for the microphone. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you I'm um, Kirsten O'Bridge. I uh, work for a company called Synetics. We are a global energy provider in the solar sector. Um, and I just wanted to know what your view was in terms of solar energy as a viable alternative energy source.
1: Well, we are doing it. We are doing it, and I think uh, there is a lot of potential for it to be to be used. Um, from last year to this year, we managed to um, have uh, solar lighting only to every home in the out islands in Kiribati. Every home. And that was possible. We did it in a very short period of time. We haven't dealt with the urban energy uh, source, but we are already in the process of converting to solar. Storage remains the issue. Okay, and so, but I believe that the technology uh, for that is being developed. We have a lot of sun. A great deal of sun. Much more sun than we need. We, I wish we could bring some here, yeah. but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, there is no doubt that there are alternative energy sources which should be developed, and uh, the technology is being developed. And uh, we just, I think, sometimes I suspect that much of the inertia in converting may be driven by the, the, those corporations which are directly involved in the energy sources that are being used at this point in time.
2: Um, thank you very much for sharing your uh, challenge with us, uh, Mr. President. Can you
0: identify yourself? Uh,
2: yeah. Name is Gareth Wong. Our company is Gam Bond. We're trying to fix the financial market worldwide, so we're failing also. Um, I, my question is slightly personal and also uh, off the side. I hope you don't mind. What's your plan after you retire from being the president? <laughs> and then also, secondly, you have mentioned, you know, um, um, Democracy doesn't work. popularism, you know, youngsters and social media. i just wondered: Have you ever thought of having a celebrity and politicians get me out of here program? You know, focus on your island so that they see the plight mm-hmm. themselves, and then broadcast and then get you revenue. You know, on a yearly basis, um, and have a great scenery that you just shown that, shown us kindly. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, sands is actually a very, very um, expensive commodity for certain countries. And, uh, and, and a lot was stolen, too, for your information. So, so there is a possibility there. Thank you, sir.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, that, um, I'll ask uh, the, first, the, the second question first. Yes, the, um, the, the, the Pacific Rising Initiative, which I, I referred to, was something like that. It's trying to provide an avenue for, uh, for philanthropy, for private f- uh, funding, and also for the certain governments who are willing to deal directly with the countries they realize and know that need the assistance because they are most vulnerable. I think sometimes we get uh, such a large grouping. Uh, for instance, in the, in, within the UN systems, there are many, many groupings. We've got the G77. We've got uh, the SIDS, Small Island Developing States. We've got the Association of uh, Small Island States. And uh, sometimes they, they become such a large group that potential donors, and I know this came from Obama when we, where we met him, and he said, we can see your problem. We are ready to, to deal with your problem. But our concern is we cannot we can be accepting liability and compensation for such a large group. And it, it frightens us, and there is no way that um, Congress would ever agree to that. And so this is why we we decided to go uh, place ourselves in a situation where those who believe that they, they, they can contribute to, to the solution of our problem, those that believe that we are vulnerable and we need assistance, they can do that directly. And so that is the mechanism, the Pacific Island, the Pacific Rising. And um, we've had some quite interesting responses so far, both from philanthropy and also from uh, governments who are now uh, in the process of coming forward to assist. And so in the financing of that, that is one way of doing it. Uh, if there is any way you can add to that, we'd be very interested. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an effort in desperation to try and find a solution because we cannot, we cannot go on without a solution. We have to have a solution. And the, the second question, what do I do after this? Well, I've always told everybody I go fishing first. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I need to go fishing. I've been at this for quite some time, but I believe I will continue to be involved and engaged in this advocacy. It's, uh, it's taken a lot of my time, and I, I believe I have picked up uh, uh, sufficient momentum to carry on in what exactly in what capacity. I, there's a number of options available at the moment, and I'm, I'm uh, examining those. So I will continue to be involved because the job is a big one. It's not going to be done over the next few years.
0: Can I ask a follow-up to the first question? Um, you mentioned in your talk a couple of times the issue of capacity to access funds and financing. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? I wasn't quite clear okay. why you were restricted from accessing funds which presumably do exist and are available okay. to others.
1: Well, it's a, it's a paradox of what it is because we need it the most, but then because we need it the most, we don't have the capacity to do it. We're not accredited. You've got to be accredited. I do. And to get accreditation, you've got to satisfy some certain requirements of the bureaucracy involved. And so we don't have that because we're a small administration. And so in order to, to get access to, to, to the GCF, we have to go through institutions like the World Bank, okay. ADB, UNDP, but we cannot access it directly. And so, again, this is another irony because those countries that need it most, we, we made a bid for something from the, the GCF but we didn't get it but the countries that didn't quite need it as much as we did they did because they had the capacity to, to provide the documentation and the, 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 what, what's required in terms of document uh, technical uh, documentation
0: That must be enormously frustrating Yes
3: uh, <clears throat> Hi I'm Joe Lewis uh, sustainable development student at the University of Surrey um, I just wondered um, uh, so climate change um, happens on a, on a large time scale, it's much larger than um, our own lifespans and uh, the political um, cycle uh, in the UK being five years I just wondered what your thoughts were on the compatibility between the political cycle making decisions over five years uh, against that much larger time frame climate
1: change? Well, I, I'm a politician, but let me tell you something about politicians. They're not always compassionate, and they don't, they don't always have a conscience. What they have is the next election. They worry about the next election. They don't worry about what they need to do as uh, leaders. Not po- politicians, leaders. Because climate change needs leadership, global leadership. You know, they don't want politicians... What, looking for the next election to be leading on this issue. And so this, is, this has always been my, what I've been, I've been saying. You know, unfortunately, we take our politics because I know that some, some countries, they don't want to do certain things because it would have an impact on their economies and it would have an, an impact on, on them for the next election. And unfortunately, that is true. And so we tend to be guided by those things. Okay. And uh, I know maybe it's, I'm too idealistic. Maybe I'm, I'm in such a desperate situation that I'm asking people to do what uh, I wouldn't do. I don't know. I, I think... I let me, see, let me share what I did. In, in all of my advocacy, I, I was calling for sacrifice, commitment, from the international community by countries. And so what we did was um, designated uh, 400 square... 400,000 square kilometers of ocean as a marine protected area is prime fishing ground. We would, be, we would be losing revenue to do that. But we did that so that we would be doing what we're asking everybody else to do, to make a sacrifice. But apart from that, it's a very sensible conservation measure. It's needed um, in, in terms of ocean conservation. It's relatively new. And so it was important that we, we we, we start doing this. And uh, I'm glad to say that after doing that, we, we took it to the wider regional level and it's been adopted at the, as a regional initiative and other countries have since uh, done that. But um, it's, it's going to call for sacrifice and we need to be able to make those sacrifices. Um, gentleman over there,
0: the jacket.
3: Thank you. Um, my name's Quentin Peel. I'm from Chatham House and the Financial Times and by way of irrelevance I spent the first three years of my life on Tarawa. Um, I'd like to know what more you think the Commonwealth could do to try and get all the Commonwealth countries pointing in the same direction and then rather more pointedly what could the British government do to help you more? Well, I,
1: I must say that I, I was in the Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting. It was held just before the, the COP meeting in, in Paris, and uh, we get we. I think there was pretty good accord at the, the Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting. There were one or two dissenting voices, no one dissenting voice, but uh, I think what was so encouraging is there was um, um, a very strong call for very ambitious uh, targets. Um, in the build up to uh, Paris um, as far as the UK is concerned I think the UK is doing a wonderful job I think you, you've done very well in more recent times I'm seeing things happen in, in Canada as I said um, these are very encouraging I think they indicate that what one politician can find impossible another politician finds it so easy to do and so what makes it what makes the difference why is that I don't know. We don't have... Uh, in Equilibus, we don't have conservative and uh, what? Uh, we don't have too much left and right. We're just politicians <laughs> uh, trying to do what we need, uh, what needs to be done. But um, that is the question. The, the answer to the question is that the, the Commonwealth, if anything, has been quite a, a strong block in pushing for the, what is happening in Paris. Um, and Of course, uh, most of the developed Countries within the Commonwealth have been there as well.
0: Um, I saw the fellow in the green shirt over there. Um, then the woman with the striped uh, <coughs> shirt. I'll take two questions, and, and I saw the fellow over there. So we'll probably take three questions together now, and then I'll give you a chance to respond.
2: My name is Mark, Chief Nink- Scholar and Student at LC. Thank you, Mr. President, for your beautiful presentation. I would like to know what would you suggest as Permanent initiatives to keep climate change on the front line of the international community and not just a Recurrent and temporary question. Thank you
0: Can you wait and that take three questions? We're going to
1: to let, me, let me note it because I, I will forget
2: Okay. Hello, my name is Laura Erich. I'm a student of Environment and Development here at the LSE. I would be interested in your comment
0: about the new Sustainable Development Goals that have just been passed by the UN in this year. Thank you very much. Okay. And you? Uh,
2: Melri and Garaba. My name is Sam. I'm the son of a Kiribati woman uh, from Abamama. Uh, I was in uh, Kiribati uh, in 2008, uh, and I did see some of the earlier problems with uh, climate change, or global warming, it was at the time. I just—I know we're talking in long terms all the time, but what are you doing immediately? Are you doing—are you spending money on dredging, sea walls? Are you funding the families who are affected in the first instance? Are you helping them
1: relocate and such? Mm-hmm.
0: I just had a note that says they're going to try and boot us out of here very quickly, so I'm going to call upon the President to give a very short answer to okay. the three questions.
1: Okay, I, I just maybe answer the last question first. Yeah, we've been doing this. We are building seawalls. We have um, a lot of infrastructure which is not finished yet, but already being damaged by the, uh, the, what is happening with the flooding. And so we're doing that. We are, As I said, we are already training our people. Those, we have uh, schemes with our neighboring countries, Australia and New Zealand, to, to work and hopefully to migrate with uh, qualifications. And so all of that is, is being done. Of course, we bought land in Fiji, and the Fijians have just recently said, we will take your people if necessary. So that has been the biggest challenge. And I think um, I was so proud to announce it that the, in Paris, to embarrass everybody else into doing something. <laughs> 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 and uh, this DGs, uh, the, the reality with these TGs is they're all out the window for us. And uh, what happened in Vanuatu just recently, because we, like Vanuatu, we're, we're just being, we're going through the, the, the graduation process from LDC to uh, the next level. And uh, we went to argue uh, vulnerability is, is, is not, uh, it's not one, of the, it's one of the criteria, but it should take on a great deal more uh, significance. And, of course, what happened with Cyclone Pam clearly indicated that uh, it's very, very relevant in terms of... Uh, um, uh, the deciding whether a country should graduate or not graduate. I forget your question. Sorry. Sorry.
2: Initiatives we can do to keep climate change in the front line of okay. the
1: international community. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very relevant question. I think I think the weather and the climate change is, is doing that on its own. <laughs> uh? Yeah, they, and I sometimes wish. But it's not something that you would want to wish. But uh, what's happening here, what's happening in different parts of the world, it's the climate talking, screaming out to, for, to us to do something about what, what it is that's happening. And so I think it will be on increasingly beyond the agenda over time because it's going to be a lot more damage. We will... More communities will become collateral damage if nothing is done. And I really hope that as a global community, we're not waiting for that to happen before we come to realize that, yes, it is real, it's here, and it's very dangerous.
0: President Tong, you show us how research, politics, and human lives are interconnected, and you do that in a very profound way. Join with me in thanking Mr. President for an excellent presentation.